Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of sexual assault. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on our website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. And here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Back on our bullshit. Back on um, our bullshit. I see that you have a number of recommendations for me. Do you want to start with that? Sure. Um, I wanted to circle back to last week when we talked about the Cecil Hotel thing that I was in the middle of watching. And you weren't loving it because they were bringing in a person who's part of the Facebook group. (laughs) Yeah. And so I would like to, we finished it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spoil how they do the last episode. Okay. But I will say I'm re-recommending it. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Suspend your feelings. Until the end. Until the end. Okay, I, because, I can do that. Yeah, I think that they did a really clever thing, and I I actually learned a lot about the Eliza Hotel. Lane case from this. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I now have a very a, a very firm feeling that I didn't have before, so I'm re-recommending mm-hmm. it. I think they did a good job. You, my feelings were valid. <laughs> <laughs> Your feelings are always valid. Thank you. What else you got? The other things oh i wanted to recommend a documentary i've seen it a long time ago Mm -hmm. it's from 2015 called the hunting ground okay i think it was a netflix documentary that's where i saw it i think it was like made by them Mm -hmm. and it's about sexual assault and rape culture on college campuses and well that's topical (laughs) yeah that's why exactly that's what made me think of it again and it talks about the fraternity system and college sports and how much money they bring into universities and why some universities have i mean you know historically tried to silence these sort of claims Mm -hmm. of sexual assault and it just goes into like specific tales of people trying to get their stories heard and i thought Mm -hmm. it was very very Hmm. very well done i will check that out yeah highly recommend i think that lady gaga song that came out about assault was featured in it Oh, when it happens to you? Yes, I think that's, okay. yeah. I just want to say it's so weird that you mentioned Lady Gaga, because I was going to bring up Lady Gaga about this episode, because oh. the Law & Order episode is titled Out of Control, mm-hmm. which happens to be the name of an unreleased Lady Gaga song that is phenomenal. So oh. if you haven't like found that on YouTube or, or wherever, go listen to it, because it's great. And I think there's a... There's a um, mashup of it with Beyonce and Nicki Minaj and Iggy Azalea and Gaga, and it's really, really good. Oh, okay. Not a huge Iggy fan, but maybe that'll <laughs> change my mind. I keep seeing her pop up with people I like on, like, YouTube. And I'm like, do you not like her, her music or do you not like her? I don't know her music, really, because what I know of it, I don't really care. Huh, you know, okay. Fancy's fun. Sure. And all I know of her besides that is when she was being ridiculous on Twitter and like all the claims of like her racism. Yeah. So you might not have gotten this far on Trixie Mattel's YouTube channel makeup videos, but she has one that she does with Iggy Azalea. Literally what I was thinking of when I said she keeps popping up with people I like. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't watch the video, but it's like on my suggested now that I'm watching Trixie Mattel videos. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Oh, wait, one more thing. 
Yes. Do you remember last episode we were talking about the Peacock app and I mentioned that they're doing a Downton Abbey reboot? And they are. I looked it up. Yeah. Not a reboot. Another movie special thing. Yes. So it isn't a reboot. It's just like a sequel to the last movie, I guess. Right? Yes. Which I never saw the last movie either. Me either. But I've heard it's pretty good. So that was my correction for last week. I was like, oh, okay. That's what it is. (laughs) Um, And then I wanted to ask you if you... Someone at work told me about this. I didn't even realize this had recently happened. Do you remember the Kristen Smart case? Yes, I was just, I, it's so funny. I remember last weekend, I was like, oh, I should mention that on the podcast. And I totally forgot. Me too. I didn't, so for me, when Kristen Smart went missing, I was on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And so Because it was like 96? Yeah, 96, I believe. Okay. Paul Flores, who is uh-huh. who's in jail for that right now, he just got arrested in, what, April, late April of this year? Yeah. 2021 yeah but it said he was the suspect really all along he was the one that they saw with her and he lives right near us wait what it's in slow oh okay i thought you were like talking about like in your neighborhood (laughs) i was like are you serious here like i mean i didn't realize it was that close by to where we live where the suspects lived and that at the end of april the backyard or the property of ruben flores whose paul's father was dug up and that's Mm -hmm. what ultimately led to the arrest yeah because she they she went to school at cal poly san luis obispo right Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah insane after all this time it's been like 20 something years it's just got to be like i always wonder if people who commit murder Mm -hmm. (laughs) and are able to get away with it like do they ever stop looking over their shoulder because it's there's no statute of limitations on murder, right? Yeah. And it's just kind of like, did they suspect, do you think? Like, have they always been stressed that they could be caught at any moment? I, I wonder think, about that. I think that there's got to be something that scratches at the back of their mind, you know, that always is there. When we watched the Golden State Killer special um, on HBO, the mm-hmm. Michelle McNamara one. Yes. She makes that comment in her book that they read where she's like, I love that idea of like, a bunch of old men sitting yes. around thinking they're living their like happy lives, thinking that they got away with it. And then, you know, they're being wheeled out of their houses and wheelchairs, getting arrested and facing up to their crimes. Yeah. I love that idea. Yes. Ooh, insane. Um, Speaking of mm. being held up for the crimes that they've committed, mm-hmm. don't want to talk about it at length because I think there are people who have a lot more to say about it than I do or we do. Mm-hmm. But just wanted to mention that in the last week, the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd came to a conclusion and he was found guilty on all charges. And what I'm seeing on social media about that is people saying, you know, this is not justice. It's just accountability for Derek Chauvin being held responsible for his actions and that we have a long way to go toward actual justice for the Black community. So yeah, just wanted to mention that that was a big landmark thing that happened since our last recording. Yeah, I think it's obviously the the only decision that yes. could have been correct in this situation, and where yes. we are at with it now. And you know, what, of course, we shouldn't have had to even go to trial, but... Th- that's what I was going to say, was one of the, I think, most poignant things I read on social media was somebody saying, it really says something about our justice system, that something that was caught on camera that the entire world saw, that we were anxious 
that that person would not be held responsible for their actions. Yeah. Like exactly. says something, you know? So anyway, I hope that it gives some small amount of healing to George Floyd's family. Honestly, I think it's like the kind of thing where the decision happened. It's the correct decision. Mm-hmm. But it's like, that should have just been the expectation. Yes. Yeah. N- but now what? And then what about right. next time when it's not exactly? And that's the thing is a lot of people are like concerned that Derek Chauvin essentially has been like murdered right. by the system to show like, look, the justice system does work, everybody. Like, yeah. no need to keep looking over here. So yeah, and hopefully not in like, over and over and over again over the next year. We're not saying, but they did it for Derek Chauvin, so you should be happy. Exactly. Look, they did it. Right. That right. that that time it worked. It'll happen again. Right. Yeah, hopefully it just doesn't have to, you know, be a thing that keeps happening. So Yeah. Well, I think the only other thing I was going to mention before we started in on the episode and the case was that Matt and I are finally launching our Patreon in May. And so shortly after this episode comes out, you should be able to go to our website, rippedheadlinespod.com, click the link to go to our Patreon, and sign up to be a patron. Very, very excited. We have some really, I think, fun and exciting things for folks on our Patreon. So encourage you to check that out. And... One of the things that Matt and I talked about when we were creating a Patreon is that we wanted our podcast to have a kind of positive impact in the world. And so we decided that a percentage of our Patreon income is going to go to the Equal Justice Initiative, which fights wrongful incarceration and mass imprisonment. So it's not only supporting your favorite podcast, but it's also supporting justice. So FYI. I'm... So excited. By the next episode, we'll probably be able to give you, like, more information about what we'll be offering, but we've already got a lot underway. It's very exciting, and I hope it's it's what you guys like. So please give us feedback. Once you see what we have available, like, let us know what you think sounds exciting. You know, if you have questions, if you have any ideas, you know, what do you look for in a Patreon? We are all ears. Yes. Well, should we get into the episode? Yes. I wanted to just quickly mention my other oh. recommendation lightly. When my coworkers were telling me about the arrest of Paul Flores. Oh, yeah. They they recommended to me a podcast called Your Own Backyard. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole podcast of the Kristen Smart case. Oh, wow. Okay. And I think the last episode was in like late 2020. And so... They're probably updated, I bet. Exactly. So they were all saying they're all looking forward to an update on the on the case and i listened to the promo for it and a little bit of the first episode and it sounds really well done and Hmm. i'm excited to to dig into it since it's you know literally in my own backyard (laughs) did you say the name of it i don't think you said the name your own backyard okay i will check that out i've actually i'm almost current on sinisterhood which is i feel like uh, it's such a heartbreaking moment when you become current on a podcast that you've just been like binging for months and mm-hmm. so I need a new podcast. And so this will be on the top of my list to check out. Check out the other podcast that the Fall Line, the makers of the Fall Line did. I'm, it sounds really good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that one For called? like independent project. Oh, I think it's called like Fall Line. Oh, One Strange Thing. Oh, okay. There we go. I'll check that out too. Are you ready? I'm ready. Oh boy. Okay. This is a doozy, isn't it? I'm just going to tell you, I hate this episode. <laughs> Oh, really? I actually <laughs> well, enjoyed the episode, but I, we'll, we'll get to that, I guess. <laughs> I hated it up until literally the last two lines of the episode, but we'll, we'll get there. Mm. 
Okay. It's uh, season two, episode eight. It's called Out of Control. I think that the title of this episode being Out of Control <laughs> is Out of Control, <laughs> to be honest. So I don't know if you're going to try to fight me on this, but this is not a beat cop opening. God damn it, Matt. I was going to ask you if you would give me credit for that. And I knew that you wouldn't because you're stingy. (laughs) This one, I will say, is closer to being a beat cop opening than the last one you tried to weasel in (sighs) at the the carnival. Didn't we decide if it was prior to the opening credits, I get credit? No? No. It has to That's what you want to happen. (laughs) Because you would literally, you're going to get that every single week. That's too easy. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> but we we're pretty close here so we begin on the outside steps of a huge halloween party at a frat house where we see a girl who appears to be dressed as like a doll or a schoolgirl of some sort mm-hmm. it's not really clear she's got pigtails this she's... was a very dimly lit scene the whole like episode, it was hard to actually. actually see what was. it was like game of thrones i couldn't see anything yeah it's a really dark scene it's nighttime they're outside she's clearly not okay she's stumbling through a crowd and she's like pushing through one guy tries to like grope her at one point and she's like shouting everyone to leave her alone it's terrible she fights the front of the crowd where we now cut to the view of two officers now after all of that (laughs) fine (laughs) we cut to the view of two officers coming upon her and they see her through the windshield being sort of like restrained from behind around the waist by this guy yeah they're kind of like thrashing about in one spot and they get out and he's like i'm just trying to help her from being hit by a car and i thought "Mm, you might not be equipped for that yeah and also holding her in the middle of the street and there were other people walking around in the street behind them so many they get her they get him off of her and the girl her name is andrea and she says she was held down when she was inside and then she passes out on the on the pavement so in the hospital now the detectives show up and they're told by someone on staff that she was definitely raped she says and semen was present and her blood alcohol content was 0.13 she has refused a counselor up to this point and we cut to the opening credits so I took this opportunity to go pick up a Chia Pet, mm-hmm. and after applying the seeds in like a nice little motion and watching it grow. What shape? Uh, Ch-ch-ch-chia. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's like a Chia head. It's uh, Sophia from the Golden Girls. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I just decided to pop back over to the show after, you know, trimming it down a little bit. Yeah. A little, and we're back at the hospital. Chia maintenance. I actually do have a chia pet. I should I should try. I've never actually made one. You have one that's like been unfertilized or un Yeah, whatever. someone gave it to me as a gift at some point and it's in the box because I've never done it. Is it Sophia? It is. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. Right? I gotta do that. You should take a picture of it when it's done. Alright, so we're back at the hospital and Andrea is telling Logan and Soretta that her fiance Gary had invited her to this party because it's a frat party that he's pledging at. She only remembers flashes of the evening, really. And she remembers being outside with someone that was dressed like an animal with big ears. And Soretta says, can't you give us any better idea of what went on? (sighs) Um, Okay, so the survivor of a sexual assault is literally recovering in the hospital like the day it happened. And you're badgering her for information as she's giving you information. The the phrases of their questions were not particularly sympathetic. No, it was like... (sighs) annoyed with her right she's like you know i'm trying and she says she remembers that two guys ted and joel they were drinking with her they had given her scotch and she remembers that later on they were on top of her and something was over her face so she couldn't see and she tried to scream and then she remembers passing out she came to alone in the room and she was like getting herself dressed and logan says you had been drinking rape's a pretty serious accusation (sighs) 
And she tells them she was scared and she'd been drinking, but she knows what happened to her. So, yeah, looks like we're exactly where I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. You know, questioning the accusation like right from the jump. Yeah, that's that. This is my main point where I was like, oh, I already hate this episode. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's it's as soon as I saw the opening scene, I was like, I know where we're going. Yeah. And it's nowhere good. Nope. So they go and they decide to question the people who are actually, you know, suspects, mm-hmm. not the, the survivor of a crime. So they question the suspects, Ted and Joel, and they're both frat brothers. They look like literally like a 90s interpretation of Gaston and LeFou. A hundred percent. And the one who's standing, the Gaston looking kid, mm-hmm. his jeans are like all the way up to his armpits. I have never seen, and I'm pretty sure his t-shirt is like tucked into them, right? Oh yeah. Don't worry. I got a photo of oh, them. Oh, thank God. <laughs> and his hair it is the, like, spot-on 90s spoiled white boy look. Oh, he could have been a friend of any of the sons on Home Improvement. <laughs> he could have been a friend of anyone on Boy Meets World. 100%. You could Photoshop a skier onto, like, either side of his head. Yep. And they're, like, going to be going onto, like, the highest ramp of life. 100%. <laughs> so, and the other one is, like, you know, the bookish type, sort of, like, in the frap, but, like, the nerdy one. Yeah. You get it. So, they're sitting there, and they say that, yeah, you know, she might have been at the party, I guess. I don't know. But they never hung out with her. They definitely weren't upstairs with her if she was there. And, you know, everybody knows that she's, quote, unquote, an easy score. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is how they're talking to police who are questioning them about a um, potential rape. Right. This is how serious they take it and how serious they think the cops are going to take it. That yeah. they could just be like, she was an easy score. You know what it is, guys. And that they're going to be like, oh, okay. That's the attitude here. And that's the attitude. Mm-hmm. So they say she was probably just getting back at them because they had told Gary, her boyfriend, who's pledging for them, they had told him previously that she was, you know, quote unquote easy. And this made him want to break up with her. And when he did, she was pissed. So that's what they're they're going with. Right. Back at the station, Logan keeps asserting his doubts in her story in typical douchebag Logan style. <laughs> and Cragen reminds them that she's not on trial. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And they like talk it out a little bit. And Logan goes, I don't know. Somebody's lying. And Kraken goes, that makes you detective of the month, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) So they go to question a professor that she had called. And she says that she almost treats her like a surrogate mother figure. And that's just how students are. You work at a university. I do. Do you get treated like a surrogate parent? Absolutely not. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, uh, students definitely disclose a lot of personal information but I would never say that I've had a, like, parental confidant relationship with any student. <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird because she makes it seem like it's just the very normal thing. She's like, Mrs. Garrett. <laughs> yes. Mother Garrett. So, she, well, she makes a lot of, like, suppositions about Andrea's psyche. And I think it's, she's unqualified to do so. So I didn't really write them down. Oh, and by the way, I think everybody in this episode is unqualified to do so. Oh my <laughs> but God. But everybody for is real. free with their uh, personal diagnoses of Andrea. Yeah, it's, it, she's, you know, one of the kinder ones to Andrea. She yes. has a sympathetic view of why Andrea is, quote unquote, the way she is, which mm-hmm. is like seemingly the focus of this episode. Right. Find a hobby. <laughs> anyway, so she tells them. Go talk to her coworker Betsy. They uh, go talk to her. She's very like Marissa Tomei in a little library. She's got these huge bangs, teased out and earrings. I'm obsessed with her. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, you know, men were always coming on to Andrea, and she really couldn't help it. It's just she has a way about her. So Logan's like, oh, so you think she was asking for it? No. 
Logan. <laughs> yeah, she goes, do they give you guys insensitivity seminars? No woman is asking to be raped. P.S. I just Amen. recently saw a, uh, like, a trio of women comedians doing a, like, she was asking for it bit where mm. they're, like, talking to two, like, douchey guys and they mentioned something about, like, she was asking for it and they're like, oh my gosh, like, if I just dress a certain way, I can ask for things? Like, I wonder what else I could ask for. And they then there's, like, this whole clip montage of, like, one of them wearing a power suit and just, like, walking into a meeting and being like, I'm ready for my promotion. And uh, and then another one of, like, a woman in, like, a in a restaurant just sitting down at somebody else's table wearing a, like, bib napkin thing and just takes his food and starts eating it. And she was like, what? And I'm, you, look at what I'm wearing. I'm, I'm asking for this. Like, it was this whole parody of it, and it's really pretty fantastic. Oh, you have to send that to me. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, so Lo- Logan needs to watch that. So they question her a little further, and she basically tells them that Andrea might be misguided in love a little bit, but she's definitely not a liar. So they go to question her fiancé, Gary. He says that they're not engaged, so he doesn't know where she came up with that. She's got a wild imagination. Yeah. And he seems shocked that she had even been at the party. And he said that he had broken up with her because of the rumors, and she had become out of control. Mm-hmm. I guess that's where the name of the episode comes from. Yeah. And he pulls out a letter that says, if you hurt me, I'll ruin your life from Andrea. Totally normal letter to write. Totally normal letter to just have handy in the drawer. At did you your, find at where you're sitting? Did you find those random threatening notes that I left in your apartment the other day when I came to pick you up? Oh yeah, I have them right here. Actually, <laughs> that was me opening a drawer. So the detectives try to find more about her, and so they talk to this inconsequential couple who disagree about Andrea's sex life. But did you recognize the guy? Not them. Oh, oh, okay, okay, a different couple, okay. Oh, I recognize that guy. Oh, boy. I, how time. could you not? Speaking of which, I've forgotten to mention one of the, the guest cast that I wanted to point out. There's oh, three. okay. One of them, I'm only pointing this out because I found this too interesting. The main character, Andrea, mm-hmm. is played by Noelle Parker, and she will go on to play Amy Fisher in a 1992 movie called Lethal Lolita. My story. And it's Amy Fisher's own story. So she stars in a movie about herself? No, Amy Fisher. Joey Botafuco. Um. Are you here? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I totally forgot her name. Okay. (laughs) I know who she is now. Thank you. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I watched the trailer for it. Is it great? (laughs) It seems great in all the worst ways. Got it. Okay, so they're talking to, like, her roommate or something, and I think his wife, they say, though they disagree on whether she sees too many men or not in her life, as though it's anyone's business and as though it matters, they both agree that she was definitely assaulted and she looks really shaken up. This was the couple, she was blonde with, like, a, a bob with bangs, right? Kind of, yeah. In this... she was, like, nasty. <laughs> yes, she was super nasty, and this we this whole scene with the two of them cracked me up because it was the most like remedial stage quality acting and like (laughs) blocking where it was like i walk over and touch the chair and then you sit in the chair and then we move like it was very just theatrically but poorly produced it was so bad the whole thing and it was like the most like unnatural argument yes it's terrible but they're completely unimportant and they they basically just say what everybody or everybody else is already saying yes right she's been assaulted stop trying to find out if she's been raped and let's try to find out who did it and how to make it 
Right. How to make them accountable. I think the other reason I wasn't loving the episode up until, not up until this moment, but through this moment, was it seemed like so far all the detectives were doing were going around to talk to people to find out if Andrea slept around with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like, it seemed like yeah. that what they was the, what they were trying to get at. And I was just like, can we stop focusing on her sexual history and focus on the assault that she yeah. experienced? But we get there. Yeah. So they go back to the station and we have um, Dr. Olivet. That's their, I guess, resident psychologist. We've seen her a bunch of times. Yeah. She has just spoken to Andrea and she says that she's emotionally disturbed but not lying about the rape. She then makes some blanket statements about women, and mm-hmm. even though she's like a medical health professional, mental health professional, I am not going to repeat them because they were a little troubling. Yes. But she is certain, at least, that the assault happened the way she said it did. She doesn't think that she's not a credible witness. Have you ever come across those like Twitter threads or like BuzzFeed lists of, and this is when I realized this movie or book or whatever was written by a man. Like <laughs> that was her whole dialogue. Dialogue. I was like, yeah, there's not. There was no women in the in the writers' room in this episode. It's like that. Uh, that SNL skit that was just recently on about the lesbian period drama. Oh my god, that <laughs> killed me. Me too. And when they go and a sex scene that'll make you that'll remind you, oh, this was definitely written by a man. Yes. Oh god, oh, I'm so good. Okay, yeah, so they go back now, and they decide to talk to Andrea again with her mom, and I'm glad they did, because Andrea's outfit in this scene, basically, from the neck down, she looks like she could be in, like, a salt and Peppa video. Mm-hmm. She's got, like, the ripped jeans, and, like, they're tucked in. She's got this big gold belt buckle. It's just a really good look, and her hair has one of my favorite 90s <gasps> the relics. yellow, The yellow butterfly clip. It's not butterfly, but yes, it's the yellow clip. Or the clip. claw. Yeah, the banana yellow claw clip. Yes, it was those I, like sharp toothed clips. For the first half of the scene, I was like, what is on her head? And then it like the light hit it in the right way. And yes. I was like, oh my God. I couldn't stop staring at it. No. It was like the 90s like alternative to a scrunchie if you wanted something easier. Or, yes. Or harder. Yes. And that would hurt your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and snap. Oh, those were the best. So she's pissed in the scene, and her mom is pissed too because Gary's lying. And she says, I, "I'm. I have a letter to prove that we're engaged." And she shows the letter that says, "Like I want to marry you." In it, you know, mm-hmm. a very normal way to propose. Yep. Over a letter to between eighteen-year-olds love letters. They love writing letters. They don't talk. <laughs> so they go back to Gary, who says that, "Okay, I wrote that letter, but it was a moment of weakness and." The frat has told me I shouldn't really be talking to anybody. And they're like, oh, really? So they go back to talk to the frat brothers. And the, I guess it's like the the president of the frat or whatever. I don't know how frats work. President of the frat. Sure. And they have like, there's like five guys sitting at a table. It looks like a JCPenney catalog ad (laughs) for like young men. And (laughs) there's a guest star here who's actually a big actor. I didn't recognize until I looked it up. It's... Isaiah Washington. What? Mm-hmm. He plays the president of the frat. Oh Garrett my Hardy. god. I did not even connect that. Me neither. And then when I looked back at him, I was like, oh my god, that's totally him. I think it's his <gasps> one of two scenes or only scene. But um Huh. Yeah. Not a huge fan of him, so I don't want to get too into him. But yeah, same. I was just crazy. at the minute I was like, I know who that is, and then I was like, Oh, I think oh. I know who that is. <laughs> yeah, and even like I was like, I wonder if he's redeemed himself these days. No, it's just getting worse. This one had a couple of big stars in it, actually. 
Yeah, right? They basically say to the detectives, you know, we shouldn't say anything. It's a shame that she's having, she had a fantasy while she was here. And they're like, oh, so she was here. I thought you didn't know. So they're going to talk to the guests of the party instead. And when they finally get to the relevant one, his name is Stuart. And this is our other guest star. Uh, he was the fraternity president president a few years ago, and he's played by Nestor Carbone- Carbonell. Yeah, that's what name. I think. Yeah. Oh, and I lo- I love him. He's he, so beautiful. He has the most beautiful eyes in the world. I think. Like when I was when I saw him, I was like, I know this man, and I had mm-hmm. to look him up because I couldn't remember his name off the top of my head. But if you type into Google his name. You know how things will, like, autofill suggestions mm-hmm. for what other people have searched for? <laughs> the, like, most common thing is, like, Nestor Carbonell eyeliner? Question mark? Because he has, like, <laughs> yeah. such dark and thick eyelashes that everybody's like, is he wearing eyeliner? But no, he just has incredibly beautiful eyelashes. He really does. He's, oh, God. He's, he's I love him, too. So hot. He's so hot. I remember, did you did you watch Suddenly Susan back in the day? Oh my god. Yes. I mean not oh, I not like religiously, that. but I remember that. I'm I know him from Lost. Oh, me too. I loved him in Lost yeah. too. Well, I I didn't love him in Lost, like his character. Yeah. But I like him as an actor. I liked in Lost. looking at him in Lost. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he's in Bates Motel. I don't know if you watched that, but I liked I didn't. him in that too. I thought he was actually the minute I spotted him, I was like, oh my god, he was on Charmed. But there are two <laughs> actors on Charmed who kind of look a little bit like him that I was confusing him with. Okay. Yeah, I'm just I was so happy to see him in this episode. Yeah. Uh, what a thrill. What a what a well needed palate cleanser. <laughs> Honestly. Just the right time. But they talk to him. He's pretty tight-lipped about everything. You know, he was once in the fraternity, so he doesn't want to say a lot. He's like, oh, we were just in and out. We weren't there very long to see anything. And then Soretta does the worst acting, like, I need I needed a glass of water, a coughing Oh, yeah. <laughs> so bad. And then the wife of Stuart, uh, her name is Gail, she does the worst acting, like, oh, I believe you. I'm going to go get you water. And then does the worst acting, I dropped ice. <laughs> it's like it was... a series of... Terrible. terrible acting. <laughs> terrible acting. Terrible. But she basically, like, breaks it down for him in the kitchen. She's like, I want to tell you what happened. Here's basically what happened. We were there. It wasn't real quick. I thought he was over this kind of nonsense with this frat, but obviously not. I was there. I saw them, like, stalking her up the stairs to the party, saying, there she is. And then I saw, what's his name? Um, Joel? She saw, yeah, you're right. She saw Joel. And he was going up the steps. So the boys, of course, all lawyer up after they hear this news. They go back and say, like, we have evidence. And they're like, oh, we're going to get our lawyers. So Cragen says, just arrest them. We have enough. Why are we not arresting them? And I couldn't agree more. So we move over to the order side of things. The judge. (laughs) I'm not going to spend too much time on her, but she literally looks like she's styled after, like, a zombie in The Walking Dead. I don't even remember her. Her hairstyle and, like, the look on her. It's, it's. I thought I was watching Drag Me to Hell for a second. Like, she just has, like, this, like, terror... She looks like a villain. If you just see a screenshot of her, she looks like a villain. Are you it putting her been... in, our, in our photo review? I think I have a picture of her up there already, yeah. Yes, I feel like we've said several times photo thing, but one of the things we're doing on our Patreon is we are recapping the best and worst looks of the previous month's worth of episodes. So if you enjoy our descriptions of the wonderful 90s fashion, uh, you should subscribe to our Patreon. Absolutely. Yeah, she's in it. She's definitely in it. I think I gave more examples than we probably need and we can whittle them down. Great. 
Yeah, so she's, you know, they talk to the scary judge, and she says <laughs> she is on the side of the prosecution. She says she's going to order blood samples from both boys, and when they do, it <laughs> Is proves... it because she drinks blood? Because she's <laughs> the undead? <laughs> yeah, she orders, she's like, order blood samples, I've already got it. Okay, she I have, a, I like have an idea for a new sitcom, Undead Judge. It Only writes if it's, it's in the style of like Judge Judy. Texas. It writes itself. It writes itself. <laughs> oh, I'm so into Undead Judge. <laughs> oh my god, Justice in the Afterlife. Um, oh my god. So they get the blood sample results back, and Ted's semen was present. The other sample wasn't good enough to get a close enough match, but it's it's enough to to get them to take them to court and have something in their corner. The DA's office then discover, though, that the defense attorneys have filed a separate civil suit. And this makes them believe, okay, they must have some sort of gotcha moment planned for us, so we got to be extra careful. Uh, they're sniffing around, they're not finding anything. Schiff recommends that they should think like the jury and try to play their case that way. So Robinette goes back to Andrea in her house, but instead he walked into the music video set for Lisa Loeb's song, Stay. <laughs> <laughs> Literally... Uh, first of all, that was my f- like favorite song for a uh-huh. long time as a tr- as a younger person. Probably one of my first favorite songs. It was good. It was it was a good song. But literally, I'm not even kidding you. Down to her costuming and the movements, I almost want to put a side by side picture up someplace. It's so spot on. The well, oh, it'll be on the uh, the photo review episode on the Patreon. She is. <laughs> I have that picture up. I need to get like a picture of Lisa Loeb to compare. So he's in her apartment and he's probing for information a little bit. You know, he lets her know the defense might have something on you because they're filing another suit. So do you know of any way we can find out if there's someone who could try to say that you would have consented to this? And she says she's tired of feeling like a slut. And while Robinette sympathizes with her, he says this is, you know, kind of the way they're playing it. And he wonders, do you think Gary could be involved? Or can you think of who the costumed person with the big ears was? Mm -hmm. And she says, I don't know, maybe it was a mouse that had big black ears. So they go back to the police station, and apparently they have a list of the people in costumes there. And they're like, well, there was no mouse or rabbit, so it must not be here. Look, this, that, Okay, which, by the way, how did they get this list of costumes? The minute they started reading them off, I was like, a drunk college Halloween party? Nobody knows, A, who anyone is, let alone, B, what they were dressed as. And there were a billion people there in the first scene. A billion. There was one Snoopy? I mean, I mean, Snoopy, but you know what I mean? There was like, what do they have? A Batman. monster, a vampire. Yeah. Like, come on. But they see Snoopy on the list. And for some reason, when they heard of an animal with big ears, Snoopy didn't register because he's not a rabbit. Right. But thank God she's d- divulged that the ears are black. So they've cracked the case. They go talk to the, <laughs> I wrote, they go talk to the little twink that was dressed as Snoopy. <laughs> Oh my god, wait, he was the, like, physics kid, right? Yeah, with the Jimmy Neutron hair. He was gayer than life, and his hair was, like, it fully was, like, Johnny Bravo, Jimmy Neutron, like, 12 inches, it was like a unicorn horn made of Mm -hmm. hair. Yeah, it was like a unicorn horn that was, like, just dull enough to be a pompadour. (laughs) He was hot, though. I thought he was really cute. He was very cute. Okay. So he says, I was at the party. I was Snoopy. I took her upstairs to use the bathroom when she was sick at the very beginning. And then later on, I was worried about her. So I went back upstairs. And when I did, he saw Andrea running out of the bedroom and Joel running out behind her, grabbing her as she tried to get away and pulling her back in. 
And I just thought like, okay, I think it's great, but um, A, you could have said something uh, or done something at the time. Right. And B, like, you literally saw her like running, trying to escape and someone grab her and pull her back in. It's time to get some help at that point. Hello. What What was his name? Oh, I think it. I think it's Brad Kane. Is the actor's name or the <gasps> character? I think it's the. Okay, that's the actor's name, and if it is, he was the singing voice of Aladdin. I think that kind of makes a little bit of sense. He looks very different now. He was also on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What the fuck? <laughs> oh my god! Who knew? How funny. Okay, well, sadly, he's not queer. <laughs> Are you sure he's not gay? Where's does it say personal life? Uh, married to Sarah Thompson. Come on! <laughs> uh, well, I hope you're very happy together. Yeah. The DA's team now tries to make deals with each of the two defendants, and they both are unhappy with the offer of rape three. They both have their defendants... I'm sorry. They both have their attorneys rejecting both deals, and Ted says... You know, the main douchebag guy says, you're destroying my life like it's a game. Poor guy. Right. But he says, Gary set it all up. Go talk to Gary. He'll tell you. So they go talk to Gary. This is going to sound so like cliche, but Gary looks like a nice guy. Uh Uh-huh. You know, but. Plot twist. That's like the dangerous thing about this whole Speaking of which, that is another actor who is kind of not I wouldn't say, like, a really, really famous actor. He looks really familiar to me. He was Arthur on the live-action Tick television show. Wait, they had a live-action version of the Tick? They sure did, with uh, Patrick... Um, he was Elaine's hot, stupid boyfriend on Seinfeld. Oh, Patrick Warburton. Yeah, he was the Tick. <gasps> was it good? There was only, like, nine episodes of it, but I remember liking it. I loved, okay, I loved the, the Tick the cartoon. cartoon. Yeah. We are really on tangents today. Boy, are we. Wow, you took me to a place with a tick, though. I am like, my mind is racing. This is the way my mind works. <laughs> I'm like thinking of a million old shows. They talk to Gary, and Gary says, he has a, an attorney present, and they say, you know, if you want the truth, we need a deal. They offer him a deal reluctantly because they know he's the best chance they get. And he says that he invited Andrea to the party to have sex with the frat guys specifically. And he believed that this was the case because they had an argument on the phone or something. And he said to her, like, oh, I've heard about your reputation. If you're into guys all so much, I can arrange for you to have the whole house. Right. And she laughs and says, like, go ahead. And that's why. Okay. Yeah. And that's his basis for now setting up a rape. Right. So much wrong with all of that. Oh, and yes. not to mention, he says that she said to him, oh, they'll like my costume if they like little girls. That part, I wanted to throw up on the television when I saw when I heard that line. I was like, what the fuck? And they, they all, it was like meant to be provocative, obviously, because they put that like high-pitched music in the background. Right. Like it was shocking. Right. But it's like, who says that? Anyway, very, so much wrong with all of that. They go back and they talk to Andrea and she says, yeah, I said things like that, but we were having like a silly argument, which is obvious. And you know why they even asked her. So Stone and the team meet up together and they try to build the case and they realize they need more because they know that the jury is going to look at the defendants and see their sons. When they look at Andrea, they're not going to see their daughter. Sad, Mm -hmm. but true. 
they talked to the old frat president, um, that hot mofo who we talked about before, oh, Esther. God, so hot. <laughs> and he says, okay, fine, fine. Uh, I will tell you what I know. He says that he was there the night of the party. Gary was there also. And Gary told him that he knew she was being assaulted in there. He knew she wasn't consenting and he regretted it. On the stand, he's cross-examined by the defense after testifying to this in court. And they make him seem like a flip-flopper. They make him seem like flimsy. Why are you saying this now? Your original statements didn't say this. Didn't you get a plea bargain? You know, not looking great. They get Andrea on the stand next, and she does a great job for the prosecution. She tells her story. It's very compelling. And she says that she remembers trying to escape. She remembers being raped by them. And it's really emotional. On cross-examination, they try to, like, portray her as a drunk, as someone who was out of control, And the attorney wants her to admit that there's a possibility that she doesn't remember consenting since she'd been drinking so much. And she responds with the quote, If you think that a woman doesn't know when she's being raped, I hope you never find out how wrong you are. That was a good comeback. So good. So good. I was like, that is like probably the the most effective line I've seen in a Law & Order episode so far. Agreed. So, and, and the, the lawyer doesn't have anything to say. She just walks away. Yep. She pulls a Wendy, a Wendy from Potomac and <laughs> slithers off. <laughs> I love that. So in the next scene, we finally learn what the big reveal was that the other side has. Oh, yeah. She neglected to tell everybody that she had sex with her ex-boyfriend the night before the attack. And, of course, this doesn't matter in real life. It, like... It doesn't matter. I was but... kind of confused when this happened in the episode because they treated it like this bombshell. And I was like, so what? I, okay, so I felt that way too. But then I thought back and I kind of understand what Stone's worry was because it's not just the fact that she had sex the night before, it's the fact that she said she's been engaged to this guy and it's going to play to her not either A, not actually believing she was engaged and lying about it now. Oh, yeah, yeah, or- yeah being engaged and not even caring right she's like well i didn't think it was important and i didn't think my prior sexual history was going to come into play and besides we used a condom and uh they're like oh really and she's like yeah i always use condom and so stone is like "Ooh, okay so they use this information her ex is on the stand and even when he's talking to the defense he doesn't seem to want to be there he says the sex was like a one time thing there were it's not an affair and that they always use a condom even in their relationship they've always used a condom mm-hmm. stone then recalls gary to the stand who corroborates this says that in their relationship she's always used a condom she was fanatical about it and she even carries them on her with this new evidence the jury is dismissed and returns shortly after i don't know how long they took but they have two findings of not guilty for the boys. They leave the courtroom looking like rock stars, the boys. Oh my god, it literally laughing, was like a great time. They could have been pouring Gatorade over each other. It was like a fucking football <laughs> victory. Yes. Yes. And she's ushered out looking like a villain with her head in shame and, you know, everyone's asking her, "Oh, what do you think? How do you feel?" And Stone, you know, pauses with her for a moment and the courtroom steps and is trying to make her feel better, but she's obviously feeling dejected and rightfully so. Yep. And Stone says something like, listen, I'm sorry the system let you down. And she says, so is she. And the episode ends. Yeah. Rough. Yeah. But I gotta say, I was really, this might sound weird, but I'm really glad they were found not guilty in this episode. Because that's what happens all oh. the time in real life. Right, right, right. So like it was you know what I mean? accurate like, to how things often go. Got it. Yes. Yeah, because so far, 
I correct me if I'm wrong, but like ninety percent of the episodes we've seen have ended with what that when they end in a conviction, it's usually in our favor. Correct. You know what I mean? It's usually and this is like one of the very first ones where it didn't, and I was really glad that the first time that they handled a sexual assault case of this type, they showed how fucked up they the showed system how is. It, exactly. So that even though I'm you know sad for her, yeah, um, it's it's a more accurate representation than we've seen so far. Yes, yeah, I think this is only the second or third episode where Stone has lost a case. Like typically, yeah. like we've talked about, you know, shows like Law and Order, it's often like, well, justice prevails in the end, which isn't accurate to how the world often works. And so, yeah, I agree. Like, it, even though it was an unfortunate conclusion to the character's story, it's probably more accurate to oftentimes how many men are acquitted of sexual assault when they shouldn't be. Well, (sighs) I have more to say about that in the actual case. I can only imagine. So this episode is based on the St. John's lacrosse case. And it's one of the ones where due to anonymity, we do not know that who the survivor of this story is. So okay. um there's there's actually a couple of books about this case or at least a couple of books that reference this case and including one by a uh anthropologist who has studied rape culture on college campuses and she always refers to her as with the pseudonym Angela. So okay. um, we can use that if we want to refer to her during this discussion. Okay. Gotcha. Okay, so St. John's University is in New York City, and it's a private Catholic university, and it's the main campus of it is located in Jamaica, Queens. Um, at the time of this incident, it was the college had a student population of about nineteen thousand, and it was the largest, the nation's largest Catholic university. But in the early nineteen nineties, it was kind of a commuter school, so it didn't really have much in the way of student residence halls. And most of the students at the time, according to, you know, studies of where students were living, most of them were living at home with family. But there were, of course, some private residences located close to the campus that some students lived in. Okay. So on March 1st, 1990, a Black woman student was in the company of a classmate named Michael Calandrillo, or Calandrio. Um, so we do know the men's names in this case, but not the woman's name. So both, I'll just refer to her as Angela for ease of uh, conversation. So Angela and Michael were both members of the school's rifle club, and they had finished target practice, and Michael offered to drive Angela home, because again, there weren't residence halls on campus. And she said, sure. And he said, okay, great, but I need to stop off at my fraternity house first to get gas money because I need to fill up my car, whatever. So he drives her from campus to his house, which is a fraternity house. And when they arrive, he says, oh, come in and meet my housemates. And she's like, no, I don't want to. But he talks her into it. Once she's inside, people are drinking, and she's pressured to consume multiple alcoholic beverages, despite telling them, I don't really drink, I have kind of a bad reaction to alcohol. They, like, pressure her and pressure her and pressure her, and she drinks, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of differing reports, but between two and three drinks of vodka mixed with some orange soda. (laughs) I know, that sounds like a bad combo to me. Vodka and orange soda, yeah. Yeah. Dr. 
uh, Peggy Sande, who's the professor of anthropology that I talked about. She's a professor, um, actually, I think she's retired now, but from the University of Pennsylvania. She studied um, sexual assault on college campuses a lot and has a book called Fraternity Gang Rape and talks a lot about this case as well as uh, relevant subsequent cases and really talks about how this case, like it emphasizes a lot of power dynamics, particularly between uh, this woman and the men in the fraternity house and sort of the the racial and gender dynamics of how the case eventually kind of plays out as well. Mm -hmm. So when speaking about the case, she writes, left alone on a third floor bedroom, she, meaning Angela, accepted a drink from Michael. She reported that the drink tasted terrible. Based on the symptoms she displayed throughout the evening, many involved with the case suspected that the drink was spiked with ketamine, a drug that other rape cases demonstrated caused a separation of mind and body so that the ability to feel and control one's own body is blocked. But this was never proved. And it was so interesting because when I read a lot of articles about this, and I, and I read some excerpts from the Peggy Sande book. I my whole thought this whole time was like God. It sounds like she was drugged, but nobody was talking about that until I got to this Peggy Sande book about it. And essentially, it sounds like that they were unable to test or prove whether she had been drugged in this incident. That sucks. But uh, she reported that she began to feel really sleepy and really sick after drinking these drinks, and she asked to be taken home. And that is when Calandrio sexually assaulted her, according to ADA Peter Reese, as, quote, Angela fell in and out of consciousness. He then left her uh, in a room with other defendants who proceeded to sexually assault her as well. And she was allegedly assaulted by six white male students. Three of them were members of the lacrosse team at St. John's University, hence the um, name of the case, the St. John's lacrosse case. She was then brought to another house uh, where other lacrosse teammates lived, where she was reported to have been continued to be sexually assaulted, and they bragged about, quote, what she had done for them. So the assailants in this case, I have their names. So they are Walter Gabrinovitz, Andrew Draghi, D-R-A-G-H-I, Matthew Grandinetti, Thomas Dean, Michael Calandrio, Adam Gerber, and Joseph Riley. So Gerbrinovitz and Calandrio, after taking her to this second property where she was assaulted again, then took her home. And apparently during this process of taking her home, they said that she, quote, freaked out on them. And they, like, dismissed her upset and, and, like, insulted her and called her a drug addict and just, like, left her at her house. For perspective, uh, Angela was only five foot two and weighed a hundred pounds. All of the attackers were over five ten and over one hundred and eighty pounds. So one of the elements that they talk about in this case is that she was much much smaller than all of her assailants. And somebody who's a hundred pounds, even if her drinks weren't drugged, that's a lot of alcohol for somebody that small. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I don't care how strong you are. Yes. When you're 100 pounds, there is a difference. Yes. So after this assault, she did not notify anyone of the assault until about two weeks later. But uh, I'll come back to this because there's a little bit of, of disagreement on this. 
So she waited a couple of weeks to notify anyone. And of course, like everyone was like, well, why did she take so long? Blah, blah, blah. All of this victim blaming stuff. And the um, ADA in the case, whose last name is Reese. So ADA Reese talked about how during this time, the lacrosse team conspired to keep the assault a secret because during the attack, Angela remembered one of them saying, what if she talks? And heard another one of the men assaulting her say, so what? Remember Tawana Brawley. No one believed her. No one will believe this one. So we talked about the Tawana Brawley case in a previous episode, I think in season one, but this assault happened just three years after the Tawana Brawley case. So it was still kind of like Mm. fresh in the cultural memory. And these men were using that as a justification to say, you know, nobody's going to believe her that any of this happened. Yeah. So when the attack became public, the news noted that St. John's University community didn't really respond in a way that a lot of other college campuses likely would have responded at the time. Like they noted that a lot of other college campuses, if this had happened, that there would be student protests, there would be calls for change, which working at a university, I can guarantee you that is exactly what happens when things like this happen. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, this is kind of odd that the St. John's community was really kind of blasé about this. And so in a New York Times article by Alessandra Stanley that I read, um, she writes that, quote, Many students appeared blasé about the whole case. Many say it was more just a party that got out of hand rather than a case of forcible assault. Yikes. Reportedly, those students that did speak up, um, and there are a lot of quotes from kind of the general student body in various articles, but a lot of them sympathized and supported the six white men Um of you know, shocked Pikachu face. I am 0% <laughs> surprised by this. And they blamed the survivor for the assault. Mm-hmm. One of the articles that I read about talked about how the incident didn't really stir up a lot of racial tension as was kind of anticipated because, you know, she was a black woman, all of her assailants were white men. And one student in one of the articles, her name is Joanna Budsko, and yes, I'm saying her name because, Joanna, you are a piece of crap. She stated Mm. that Black students would want to exploit the incident and said, quote, like Tawana Brawley, they will try anything to get something out of it. They'll do anything. If anyone turns it's racial, it's going to be them. Oh, God. So, Joanna, there's a special place in hell for you. Seriously. But But it is interesting in kind of reading the articles that race really didn't come up much in the discussion. Of course, I think that that probably can be attributed to uh, maybe the the period of time that this occurred in, maybe people weren't as skilled at talking about those nuances in 1993 as they are maybe today. Um, but yeah. interestingly, not a lot of the articles did talk about the, the racial element to this case. I guess that would show you the prevailing... Um attitude at the university at the time 100 percent. so our my best friend joanna budsko goes on to say it's just like walking down the street in the city by yourself you know better than to go into a dark alley if you've been drinking you just don't go into a house with a bunch of guys so as i said a lot of the student mood on the campus was basically that this woman brought it on herself she shouldn't have gone into the house she shouldn't have had drinks And so, of course, it's not these six young men's fault. She's trying to ruin their lives. All of that garbage. Terrible. As a side note, I thought this was just kind of a kind of perfect sort of cherry on this shit Sunday. The house where the assault happened 
was nicknamed at the time by the community Trump Palace. Of course. Right? Doesn't that I mean, just seem that perfect? That really embodies it all. I think it's perfect. <laughs> I think it's so fitting. They did a good job. Yeah. So Michael Calandrio was charged with first degree sodomy, but he was tried separately and um, two additional students were charged with lesser offenses. So, okay, so let me back up. The trials for this case were a little bit convoluted because there were six or seven men involved. Three of them, uh, like a couple of them were able to plea down to lesser charges, and one of them was able to uh, get prosecutor- prosecutorial immunity because he agreed to testify on behalf of the prosecution in the case. So the case that I'm going to mainly focus on is uh, three of the men were tried jointly, and that was Walter Gabrinovitz, Andrew Draghi, and Matthew Grand- Grandinetti. So they were tried together. At trial, the case really focused on the issue of consent, of course, and uh, the prosecutors said that she was not able to give consent because she was drifting in and out of consciousness. The defense of the three men focused on her sexual history and, uh, you know, much like the Law & Order episode we watched kind of talked about, oh, you know, maybe she was promiscuous, blah, blah, blah. Um, None of which, just to be clear, is a justification for sexually assaulting someone. But they tried to paint her as this woman who, like, consciously elected to engage in quote-unquote wild sex with multiple men and then regretted it once it was over. And so she concocted this story of sexual assault because she feared that the real story would get out there. That, like, oh no— I slept with six men at this fraternity house and everybody's going to find that out. So I'm going to make up this case of rape instead. I know this is like old news, but I just don't even understand how that narrative works anymore. I honestly like, oh, I had sex and now I'm ashamed. So I'm going to tell people that I was raped. Like, right. The frequency of something like that actually happening. Not non-existent. I can't even. <laughs> they also claimed that they referred to her as a scorned woman during the trial because they claim she fabricated this entire event, this entire attack as retaliation against Michael Calandrio because supposedly she had arranged a meeting with him shortly after the attack and he failed to show up at it. And so they were basically like, oh, she was just mad that he stood her up. So defense attorney, who his name is Stephen Scaring, stated, traumatized, baloney, scorned, you bet. Ooh. So the survivor, Angela, was subjected to five full days of testimony, during which at one point she was excused from the stand because the line of questioning had her shaking and sobbing. So mm. want to point out that even when there is really excellent evidence, cases, all of that kind of stuff, it... I don't think we very often talk about the courage required and the trauma we put survivors through as part of these cases to in order to have them prosecuted. By all accounts, the defense asked her just really insensitive questions, was really aggressive with her, and it was really impactful for her. She also stated that she had dropped out of St. John's University shortly after the attack and had contemplated suicide as a result of the attack. And the prosecution highlighted that she had reported inconsistent amounts of how much she had to drink that night to various people and used that to undermine her testimony and to call her a liar. Which, again, let's just rewind and think about if somebody asks you how many drinks did you have at a party, often that's a little fuzzy, partly because you're drinking, but especially if you're drugged, 
And regardless, she was incapacitated. But they harped on this. Well, you said it was two drinks to this person. You said it was three drinks to that person. So you're a liar. That's how they approached that. Of course. So one of the six men involved in the assault, he was named, uh, his name is Thomas Dean, as I mentioned earlier. He was a resident of the house where the assault occurred, and he made a deal with prosecutors and received immunity from prosecution in exchange for his testimony. So he testified against the three men in this case and fully supported Angela's statements. And then another man, Joseph Riley, also pled guilty to lesser charges. He corroborated Angela's story as well saying that he had watched as uh, two other naked men had assaulted her. And and as part of his testimony, he also said that he it was clear that she was slipping in and out of consciousness, and he said she was definitely intoxicated, but he didn't think alcohol was the only cause of her behavior. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying that line almost as it was exactly written in the article, because that was one of the things that made me think, was she drugged because they're not kind of commenting on that, but indicating that alcohol wasn't the only contributing factor to the events of the evening. Yeah. So Grandinetti's lawyer, um, Benedict Guglio, G-U-L-L-O, Jr., um, piece of work, it sounds like, he called Dean, the one of the boys who received immunity in exchange for testimony, uh, he said that Dean is a liar who would do anything and say anything for his own self-interest. So basically poked holes in his testimony by pointing out that, like, he got a plea deal. So, of course, he's going to give evidence on behalf of the prosecution. So this trial of the three men went on for over two months, and the jury entered deliberation after those two months, and it took them six days to return with a verdict. And in keeping with the episode, the three men were acquitted of all charges. Of course. Of course. Several jurors, when they were kind of questioned by the news media about the case afterwards, a lot of them were unwilling to kind of speak to the news because they were concerned about, like, getting calls from people uh, who were angry about the verdict. But a few of them did agree to talk to the media, including the jury foreman. Uh, They all reported that they just didn't believe various witness testimony and said especially that of the survivor. Of course. Jury foreman Michael Fahid, who was a 44-year-old telephone company employee, said, quote, There were just so many inconsistencies and too many lies in everyone's testimony. There were just too many doubts. However, New York City mayor at the time, David Dinkins, was shocked by the acquittal and said, quote, Based upon my reading of the evidence presented in this case, I am shocked and dismayed. Author and publisher Barbara Smith uh, was quoted in one of the articles that I read as well with what I think is just kind of a perfect wrap-up to the sort of tone of the entire case. She said, quote, Rather than talking about how naive the young woman was, we should be talking about how bestial the young men were to think they could treat a human being in this fashion and get away with it. Which we, again— as we saw in the episode, as we we saw in the kind of media coverage of this case, it so often is like, why was she walking alone at night? She was, mm-hmm. why was she wearing that short of a skirt? Blah, blah, blah. All of this garbage. Uh, and we never talk about the, the, I don't know, mental, emotional corruption or whatever it is that thinks makes people think they can treat another human being in this way. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like we focus so much on... Do we do that to victims of other crimes or survivors of other crimes? Well, thank you. So one of the best, I think, analogies I have heard about this, the whole, like, 
she was asking for yeah. it or whatever, whatever like justification. One of the common things is like she was dressed provocatively, mm-hmm. right? And somebody once said uh, to me that when a car mows over a passenger or mows over a pedestrian, we don't say, why weren't you wearing reflective clothing? <sighs> like, why were you walking in the crosswalk or whatever? Like, we don't do that with anyone else in any sort of crime, but we're still doing that to survivors of sexual it's- assault. Like, so insanely disgusting to me. Horrendous. So, as I mentioned, this case kind of often drew a lot of comparisons to the Tawana Brawley case because there are still a lot of people who just fully don't believe that this assault ever actually occurred, despite a lot of evidence to support it. All of the, however, I will say, St. John's University, I can't say whether they did everything correctly because I don't, the news didn't really talk about how they handled everything a whole lot, like the administration of the university, but they did expel all six of the men okay. from the university immediately following the trial. So I'm, su- I'm in support of that. Yeah, at, um, least at, the, at the end of the day, they they yeah corrected they something. experienced some consequence. Yeah, unfortunately, as I said, the survivor of the assault remains anonymous, and so I'm not able to find information on kind of her life after this. It really just was kind of the assault and the participation in the trial that ever kind of referenced mm-hmm. her. Uh, of course, to protect protect her anonymity in the case. But um, this case is often kind of cited and referenced in other cases of sexual assault, particularly of gang rape, on other college campuses or near other college campuses as kind of a, a landmark case and one that we should always be thinking about how it all kind of happened and that these boys were or these men were acquitted of this assault. You know, I think it's... I don't really have an excellent wrap-up to this case yeah. other than to say um, justice doesn't appear to have been served in this case, um, much like we saw in the episode. So it was definitely accurate and consistent with what happened in real life. Mm-hmm. And that I work with a lot of educators on the campus that I work with who do sexual assault prevention education. And one of the things that they often talk about in their training courses or their their education is that we often focus sexual assault prevention and make it the responsibility of the survivor mm. as like, uh, you know, watch your drinks, don't drink from unopened containers, don't like leave your drink unattended, you know, don't walk, don't walk alone home at night. The the point that I'm trying to make is so much of the like prevention discourse that we hear out there is focused on survivors of assault and not at all focused on don't rape people. Uh, hello, exactly. You know, so just kind of want to conclude with that, that we have to do a lot of education with folks, particularly men, around not assaulting people because it's just horrendous. It really is. And it's awful how often it happens. Wow. So that's the case of the St. John's Lacrosse, St. John's University Lacrosse case. Terrible. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, great job on it. Uh, Thank you. And I wish I had some uh, kind of positive, uplifting something at the end of the case, but it was just kind of a, well, the justice system really let somebody mm-hmm. down in this case. My positive takeaway from this case is that she's able to remain anonymous, and I'm choosing to yeah. believe that she's living or li- has lived a very, a much better life, and I hope that her anonymity yeah. has offered her some sort of peace. Protection against yeah, cause I, that always I mean, kind of following. Based yeah. on how that case went as it was going on, I can't imagine 
how it, it would have been for her had she been in the papers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And even afterwards. Oh, my God. I mean... I agree. I guess a silver lining is that she did get to keep her anonymity because you're right. I think that she would have been just raked over the coals in the media. Um, And honestly, the news coverage, the articles that I found, and I'll put some of these photos on our social media, but you can see like the three men walking into court and it it is just the law and episode law and order episode really captured it. There's just an air of we're the heroes in the story. We're the victims in all of this. Like we're honest and trustworthy and, all of that, and it's just so gross. <laughs> and it's disgusting that people like that can walk into a courtroom and feel so confident because they honestly. know how this is probably going to go. Right. Yeah, and honestly, if she hadn't been remained anonymous, let's say she had put herself out there for right. the world to to judge in whatever way. Like, even if the prevailing narrative in the media was positive towards her or sympathetic towards her, it just puts a lot of responsibility on her because now you have to be like an advocate. And yes. that is it's... great for people who feel like they can do that and have the wherewithal and the time and the emotional bandwidth and all that. But it's a lot of pressure, I think, that survivors of vicious crimes go through mm-hmm. with them now having the pressure of having to be an advocate or being a spokesperson yes. or being a yes. figurehead. And now their life is under a microscope for... Every time something like this happens Ever. again, let's yeah. go back and talk I, to so-and-so and what do they think about it? And are they going to say the right thing? Like, I'm really glad she's able to keep her anonymity. Yeah, because it's it's interesting, even just in the, the Brock Turner case, the survivor in that case, she originally requested and received anonymity throughout all of the, the court proceedings. And then afterwards, her impact statement at the sentencing hearing kind of went viral. And she ended up kind of revealing her identity as part of her memoir and has become a speaker around uh, college campuses about sexual assault. And I have to say, like, I have so much admiration for somebody who has the strength to do that kind of work because I can't, it must be very, very hard to do that kind of work. And so it's unfortunate that it's necessary, but it is so admirable when folks are willing to do that and so understandable when they're not. Yeah, it reminds me of the episode of Unlocking Us, Brene Brown's podcast with Tarana Uh Burke from the first season. Yeah, And when she talks to her and Tarana... She recounts a story of when she was at the Kavanaugh trial. Oh, yes. The Ka- the Kavanaugh yes. hearings. Yes. Um, and she says that she remembers being in the bathroom at some point and speaking to somebody, another woman who was there, who was, you know, on the same side and all that. And she said to her, oh, I just wish that she could have remembered more. You know, I wish her testimony, she could have remembered more. And Tarana remembers, like, I was standing there with this woman who's on the same side as me. And I had to right. tell her, like... Let me tell you something, as someone who has experienced sexual assault, I, I'm glad she doesn't remember more. Like, yeah. you, we don't want to remember more. No. I'm glad she remembered as much as she did. And to have, like, a well-meaning person, of course, criticize their, their memory of that trauma. Like, that's what we, what we do to people, you know? I'm sure a lot of people walk yep. away from that or similar situations saying, like, oh, I wish there was just more so we could have, like, got him. I wish we had... Hello, like think about the most traumatic experience you've ever had in your personal life and then thinking about <laughs> having to relive it every day in preparation for like public events and then for a trial no, and then you. having to like relive it again. Come on, the yeah. expectations yep. we put on people going through things that we don't understand is so insane. 
Yeah. Well, all of that. That was a emotional episode. Yeah. Should we? Do you want to rate it? Rate the Law and Order episode? Yeah. Let's see. Um, I originally was giving this a higher rating, like a B minus for watchability, but I got, uh-huh. uh, I'm going to give it a C plus. I'm going to switch. I'm not going to go too far down. And okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll say that just really briefly because previous episodes where I feel like they sometimes begin a conversation or not even have it at all. At least this one I felt like was like a real dialogue back and forth. Yeah. And we saw a lot of people saying the right things. And yes. I'm like I said, I'm glad it didn't turn out bells and whistles and sunshine and lollipops because it doesn't. And right. I think that if it right. did, it would be completely contradictory to the whole like rape culture that exists. So I give it a C plus. Right. So C plus yeah. there. And then for the crime, I mean it's pretty close to what actually happens, yeah. I feel like. So I give them a, a better rating for that. I'm gonna give them a B. Yeah. I think I would agree with you on both of those. Um, Okay, compared to how previous episodes of Law & Order have treated survivors of sexual assault, this one did marginally better in highlighting when people said really awful things. Yes, exactly. I liked Stone's closing statement of the jury got it wrong and the justice system let you Mm -hmm. down because it often lets down (laughs) a lot of survivors of sexual assault. And so I thought that that was accurate and like you said it, it i'm glad that it didn't paint this rosy picture of you know they've convicted and everything's solved and everything's perfect like it, it the fact that it didn't do that i think was probably the right choice i mean we wouldn't have law and order svu if <laughs> not for <laughs> very that. true so i'm gonna i'll agree with your ratings of like c ish for watchability and how it how accurately it dealt with the case i'm gonna you know give it a, a b again as well because i i think it dealt with a lot of similar elements in the storyline yeah yeah and it had nestor uh it had nestor in it i mean and he is always a complete joy to look at so that really like tipped the scales for me (laughs) listen if you're feeling a little bit blue after this listening to this episode just do yourself a little favor and google nestor carbonell and you're welcome just have a have a few moments (laughs) you're welcome that's called self-care that is a great great way of self-care i agree Did you know that for $0 a month, you can help support our podcast simply by rating and reviewing on whatever platform you're currently using to listen to this episode? And let's be honest, most of us find podcasts because our friends recommend it to us or our coworkers. So if you're enjoying our show, tell somebody about it. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We absolutely love getting email from you. We would love to hear what you think about the cases and the episodes, so feel free to just send us a note with your thoughts, your ideas, your suggestions, or just say hi. And now, more than ever, we're asking you to check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. As we said, we're launching the Patreon really soon. We're also going to be thinking about a newsletter. You'll find information about our merch store upcoming. So check it out. There's a lot of cool things coming up. That's right. And there are a lot of great true crime podcasts out there. So if you'd like to see us collaborate with any of them, let us know, let them know, or put us in touch with each other. And thanks so much for listening for Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.